So I think what I would tell young people is like, speak up. If it doesn't feel right, say something. Because chances are, if you're feeling it and thinking it, others are as well. Hey everyone, this is Jay. And this is Angie. And welcome to another episode of Across the Lines, a place where we have candid and vulnerable conversations with Pan-Asian American leaders about identity, work, and the confluence of the two. Join us on a journey to amplify their voices, humanize their achievements, and share their wisdom. Whether you're looking for advice or just want to hear leaders who've been there and done that share their personal and professional stories, you've come to the right place. Debbie currently serves as the CEO of OpenTable. She stepped into the role in August 2020 during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. Previously, Debbie spent the past 10 plus years at Kayak, where she joined as an intern and spent many years building up Kayak's international presence, from launching in 30 plus countries to serving as a GM of the APAC business. Most recently, she was the Chief Commercial Officer at Kayak before becoming the CEO at OpenTable. In this episode, we spoke with Debbie about how she navigates feelings of otherness that manifest in her personal and professional life, why it's important for people to recognize the structures or paradigms they're working within and learn how to successfully operate within or not be in them, and why she believes that there are no wrong turns, especially early in your career. Debbie, thank you so much for coming on to Across the Lines with us today. We're so incredibly excited for this conversation and a massive shout out to Dave Wu, who made the introduction between Jay and I and Debbie. So the way we like to start off all our episodes is by asking our guests, what was your favorite dish growing up? And I'm particularly excited to hear your response here since you are the CEO of Open Table, all about food, all about community all about eating any type of noodle soup i'm generally a a fan of but growing up and even continuing on into adulthood it's beef noodle soup so for those of you who don't know it's a it's a very commonplace popular dish in in taiwan Um, you can pretty much find a street stall or a restaurant that's serving it on any block in taipei Uh, i grew up eating it like my grandparent, my grandmother would make it for me. And then my, my mom would make it for me. And then I'd sp- I spent most of my summers in Taiwan. And so I would frequent all of the, the good beef noodle soup places. And even now as an adult, like when I go back with friends, we'll still try out n- new places for beef noodle soup. But yeah, that is my favorite dish growing up. It's not fancy. Although I have been to like places that have fancy beef noodle soup um, and it tastes just like unfancy beef noodle soup, except just more expensive. I feel like that's a consistent uh, d- like difference between having the same type of food at like a normal like local place and having it like a really expensive place. Like there's not really any difference in quality. If not the the one that was local, kind of hole in the wall is actually maybe even a little bit better, and you, yep. <laughs> you have like better memories with it, etc. Debbie, I'm curious what your upbringing was like. Um, I know you grew up in San Francisco, but you also just mentioned that you spent the summers in Taiwan. What was that like? So I'm the only child of immigrant parents. My, or a little bit different. Oftentimes you hear about Taiwanese families uh, coming to the States because, you know, the parents were pursuing some sort of higher education, a master's or, or, or something like that. That's really like the waves of Taiwanese immigrants that, you know, came in the 70s and 80s. Our family won a lottery to grant us citizenship or green cards. My mom, my grandparents, my uncle and aunt, and then my, my dad as well, immigrated with really not much. 
we didn't have much money and there wasn't really a plan. Um, but it was just this hope that they would be able to provide a better life, um, future, later generations. We all lived in one two-bedroom apartment. Um, it's called Park Merced. All of us cramped in, but I had really fond memories. I mean, my mom was working. My dad was taking English classes because he didn't know how to speak English. Didn't have very much money. My grandmother watched me during the day. So I spent a lot of afternoons in Chinatown sitting quietly next to her while she was like playing Mahjong and we'd go grocery shopping, you know, and then we'd go rent VHS tapes to watch like soap operas and she'd, you know, buy me a snack at the local grocery. We ended up moving to Foster City, which is a suburb out of San Francisco, maybe when I was five or six. And my parents opened a brick and mortar travel agency that they started. My dad ended up finding work in the U.S. by becoming a tour guide for Taiwanese tour groups. So back in the day, you'd see throngs of Taiwanese tourists coming in. He auditioned to give tours and he, he got the gig. And a few years into that, he decided to come out on his own and open a travel agency. My parents worked a lot. So like, I think early on, a pretty diehard work ethic, like you get it done at all costs type of work ethic was shown and full display for me. It was a lonely childhood, I would say. Like I was around adults a lot. I read a lot. Um, we spoke Mandarin solely in the house. There was no English spoken. I remember when I went to school, like not understanding what anyone was saying and how frightening that was. But, you know, like it was also cool to witness and experience like my parents climbing up like a social economic ladder. Right. So we started off in a really small apartment in you know, South San Francisco and moving to Foster City, moving then to another house in Foster City and ultimately ending up in Hillsborough, which is a very affluent um, suburb of the Bay Area. And it was just, you know, like me and my parents and my dad was often gone in Taiwan working on that side of the business. And there was just a lot of pressure. So like they were kind of clueless on like what I don't think they were tiger parents and that like they didn't know what they needed to push me to do. They just knew that whatever it was I was doing, I needed to be really good at it. And so there was just a lot of navigating and figuring out like, okay, well, if they want me to go to Stanford or Harvard, like what do I need to do to get there? Right. And figuring that out, you know, ended up going to Stanford for undergrad. And I always joke that, that the day I got in, I think my dad loves me a little bit more because it was like such a huge thing. It was almost like a bigger thing for him. Than it was for me. So sometimes I feel like I live my life, you know, in the pursuit of wanting like their approval and their stamp and like fulfilling whatever chip on their shoulder they have in the form of me. You mentioned this idea of you being kind of like lonely growing up and you were spending most times with adults and reading a lot of books and kind of maybe like creating your own world. I'm curious how that ended up impacting your own upbringing. And then the second, the second thing, and maybe we can talk about this later. I'm curious if that perspective of you just trying to, you know, at least in the background, trying to like have your parents, like maybe validate like your path or what you're doing. I wonder if that's still there um, or, or have you been able to kind of work through it? Or is that something even you, you want to work through? Two big questions. You can take it however, wherever yeah, you like. Yeah, no, the, the lonely one is, um, I'm just, it's, it's funny because my husband is one of five, but also like, it is lonely growing up as, as an only child. And Dave, my husband always says that I am really weird. He's like, come on, like, just give, let's like give Steven a sibling. 
But, you know, I actually think there's a silver lining in most things in life and like what being a lonely only child in a room full of adults and books meant was that one, like I became very savvy at navigating adults and watching them interact. And I think I have generally pretty high EQ um, that served me very well in my life, both personally and professionally. And second, like I was a voracious reader. Like I just, it brought me to another world, many different worlds. My husband is white. His dad was a doctor. He sailed, like his dad was, a, they sailed when they were like growing up. And I always talk about like the SAT being such a biased <laughs> test. Like he knows all the parts of the boat, like how you call parts of a boat, right? Like those are things that I had to like study and memorize and read. Like I think a lot of people take things for granted. Those were things I could not take for granted. So like reading was also a way for me to speak a certain way, learn the vernacular of a progressive, upper middle class, successful working professional or an intellectual who would get into Stanford, right? Like that's all stuff that I watched and learned that didn't just, that was not just bestowed upon me. And I think for a lot of Asian Americans, what, whether you're realizing it or not, we're always watching because we straddle both worlds. Wow, there's just so much there. I'm, I'm still trying to digest everything because I resonate with so much of that. You mentioned that it's it's almost like a cultural code that you didn't have in your upbringing that you are now, or throughout your childhood, you learned bit by bit. While this cultural code was already almost like inborn for some others, one being it sounds like what you're insinuating at is your husband. And <laughs> I see you giggling here. He loves it when I bring him up in these types of conversations. Oh, yeah. Like, bring him up, bring him up. Bring bring him up. Always shaking his head. He's like, I love these cameos. <laughs> Something interesting that you had noted online that we, we'd love to discuss is how you and your husband were in a restaurant in the East Coast one day. And you kind of had this realization in this almost like mundane moment of walking into the restaurant of something around your own identity and around your dynamic with him and how that ties into broader society. Would you be able to elaborate a bit more on that point? Sure. And so what do you so. think or yeah, what do you believe are some of kind of like the the root causes or kind of like the facets of your identity and upbringing that facilitated this reaction? Yeah, I mean, I think the quote um, that I've written somewhere before I said is that the unclenching of my stomach when my white husband walks into that New England restaurant with me as if his presence there justifies my own. So we were living in New Hampshire for almost five years. And New England is a very different place than the Bay Area. And I grew up in the Bay Area. It's definitely a lack of diversity. I think the whole state has like 3% people of color, everyone really looks the same way. I've been so used to my whole life, right? Walking into a room. I don't know if other Asian people or other people of color who are listening feel this way. When I walk in anywhere, like it could be at a restaurant, it could be a supermarket, it could be at work and it could be a meeting. It could be on a Zoom call. I quickly take inventory of like, okay, who looks like me? <laughs> like, are there women? Are there Asian people? Are there other people of color? You know, so I do it very naturally in my life too. And I think, especially after becoming a mom and my son, Steven, who is half white and half Asian, he looks very Asian. He looks like an Asian version of my husband. I've become even more aware of like the surrounding, you know, the people who are surrounding me. And in New England and New Hampshire, oftentimes 
I am the only person of color in the entire restaurant. I'm including the wait staff. I'm including everyone in that restaurant. And like, probably no one's thinking about it. No one's looking at me and saying, what is she doing here? Or she looks different from the rest of us. But like, I feel like the otherness is so pronounced to me in those moments where like, I look around the room and no one looks like me. It feels like there are no allies. And like, you know, as if Dave is, you know, he's a tall six foot three white guy. He looks like he was like born and bred in New England, right? Like he really looks like in my head, at least he belongs there. So when he's there with me, I, I always feel better, like, like a little bit of relief because like, I don't have to answer that question if the question's even coming up, which most likely it's not of like, what is she doing here? Well, she's with her husband. So yeah, it's a lot to unpack and it's part of, you know, why I love being in the Bay Area so much, right? Is that like my story here or my background is not unique. It's not, right? There's a ton of people, like even, you know, like just walking down the street where I live who have remnants or parts of like how I grew up, similar to how they grew up. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's, that really is a lot to unpack and it sounds like an ongoing journey and a really important one. And also one that ties a lot to career and the undertones that I'm reading too. Because I'm sure throughout your career, there's been a lot of rooms that maybe look like the Bay Area, but there's probably so many more that have looked like New Hampshire and that restaurant. Could you tell us a bit more about this parallel path of career and how some of these learnings that you've had and some of these, these sentiments that you've been trying to unpack play into your professional life and your journey so far? So, you know, as, again, like the fact that I grew up with a lot of adults around me, right? So I feel like in general, I'm very good at reading a room or reading a group of people and like figuring out like how to conduct myself almost like a chameleon. Um, so for example, like when I was an, an analyst at the at Citigroup, I was an investment banker, right? It was, you know, like Wall Street, but in Silicon Valley, all the MDs and like the star associates and analysts knew how to play poker, right? And the big thing was to get invited to the MD's house for like poker night on Friday. So I taught myself how to play poker and I got myself invited and I ended up being like, not like amazing, but like a decent, I could like hold my own, right? And I feel like my career has been a series of events like that, where like, I'm trying to, I like look around and figure out, okay, like how to be, how to conduct myself while still trying to be like authentic to who I am and what I represent. And it's interesting now, because I would say at Open Table, in most meetings, I'm probably the most senior person <laughs> at the company, but at work, I almost feel like I can handle it better because I have a lot of things I can fall back on, right? Like I know my business inside and out, especially if my business is doing well, like I have KPIs, I have the degrees I've earned, I have, you know, a slew of other things that give me a lot of credibility, even though like I might feel that nagging feeling of like, wow, no one here looks like me. But like in the personal realm where we were just talking about, like, I don't have any of that. Like no one knows I'm a CEO of OpenTable. No one cares. No one knows that I have degrees from great institutions, right? In those, mo me those moments, I'm just like an Asian woman. At work, at least I feel like there's stuff that I can like fall on and there's merit, right? Like the, my work and the, the impact of my work and the results that I drive hopefully speak for themselves. So it doesn't matter that I don't look like anyone else because hopefully I'm doing a good job. 
this kind of this kind of reminds me of a conversation we had on our second season with Eric, and he mentioned uh, this idea of needing to outrun your personal life through the achievements you may be getting. I think it, it's a, it's an interesting one because again, like you mentioned, personally there isn't necessarily like a, a set of like credentials or or you know schooling or titles that you can say, hey, like I I am who I am because of these things. One question that I did have kind of goes back to your ability to be like a chameleon really early on, like being in IB and like learning how to play poker and like getting invited to like the MD's house on Friday. If, if there was someone who maybe followed your own background, just got a job at Open Table, is like early on in their career, would you give them that same advice now in 2021 as an Asian American and potentially an Asian American woman to, to be a chameleon and to, and, and to say like, hey, you should actually learn how to, how to play this game so then you can continue to advance in your career? Would you give that person a different set of advice knowing what you know now? I think even in 2021, there's always some sort of game that's going on. Even if you started your own company, right, then there's the funding game right? And like grappling with VCs and how to gain access. There's always some structure or paradigm that you're, you're working within. So I think it behooves people to know what the rules of those paradigms are and how to play within them or how to successfully not be in them. That happened to be a strength of mine, right? Like growing up, that's what I learned. I never felt like... I was the smartest person in the room. In fact, even now, like I pride myself at open table. Like, I don't want to be the smartest person in the room. Like if I am, like, I'm not leading this right. Like I want people around me to be like way smarter in their respective fields than, than I am. So it's a, that chameleon aspect is something that's unique to me. I don't know if it would work for everyone, right? Today, if I came in and like, I had a really robust set of, I don't know, analytical skills or data science skills. I don't know if I would say like, Hey, the route you should go is go figure out like what the game is and like change your ways. Because like, I just never felt like I had that thing. It took me 20 years to figure out what my thing is. And really that, what is that? It's like, again, ability to bring people together and to suss out what people want and figure out a way to move forward quickly Right. But that's like very specific to me. I don't think that's advice I would give everyone. But again, like even in 21st century, like today's workplace, there's always a structure that we are operating within. And I do think regardless of your skill set is something like mine or something else, it's just good to know what your environment is and where you're operating within. This reminds me of a conversation we had with Dave, actually, about the bifurcation between building your own house versus how do you take the house that you're in and try to break that ceiling or how do you like rebuild the foundations and there's no wrong or right way like there's folks who have gone both paths whether it's trying to carve out their own company and create their own rules or try and append the rules within the system that we're in but ultimately we're still bound to some paradigm and some cultural code and way of operating that kind of parameterizes how we act in all situations. And we kind of started off our conversation with why you're really passionate about coming onto the podcast. And something you mentioned was now that you're in this position, you'd be almost remiss to not use the influence that you've had to be able to share some of your perspectives and have your voice be heard on some of these things that matter a lot to you. Are there other ways now that, you know, you're in a position of influence that you believe are impactful for changing some of these structures that we're in that might not be the most equitable to all. 
And moreover, is there any advice for folks who are in the early or mid-career stage or even at your level of things that we should be thinking about or perhaps trying to do to create some of these more systemic changes? I think part of me saying like, hey, I would be remiss to not use my platform or my voice to get here. I mean, I was, listen, like, I think I'm very lucky to be where I am. Like, yes, I worked really, really hard, but like the stars also aligned for me and that doesn't always happen. And so I should use that to to make sure that all types of candidates are, are getting a fair shake and fair look. There's just, there's so much more we have to do, but it's definitely a start what we've done already. So there's, there's that piece, like to speak to like, not only just speak out and, and do a podcast like this, but then also to like put your money where your mouth is. Right. And for me, I took the route of like, Oh, I don't have a big idea. Like I can't build my own house. So I have to work within the confines of an existing house but I can change it and not change it just because like, oh, well, I'm Asian. I'm going to look for other Asians, but just like, let's be a little bit more open-minded on who an executive can be, what they look like, how they speak, how they conduct themselves. And so hopefully I've done that, but like, again, a lot more work to be done. And then for people career-wise, are there more things that they could be doing to be changing? I think the most important thing is to speak up. I mean, at OpenTable, we had a listening session when the anti-Asian attacks were kind of really starting to kick off last year. We had had a listening session, I think, months prior when George Floyd was murdered. And the difference in terms of engagement and people willing to share on both of those sessions was starkly different. For Asian Americans, we're still on the whole not used to having this conversation, or just used to speaking up about it at all, right? I think there's been uh, a culture of, we put our heads down and we, we go to work, right? And I, like, that's certainly the message I got from my parents. Like my dad was like, they're never gonna view you the same. So you gotta work twice as hard and don't complain about it. And I think many of us grew up with that type of ethos. And so I don't even think like, we're just starting to have a conversation. So I think what I would tell young people is like, speak up. If it doesn't feel right, say something. Because chances are, if you're feeling it and thinking it, others are as well. And Debbie, we've been speaking about your role as the CEO of OpenTable, but I'm, I'm just fascinated to hear what your experience has been transitioning into a company like this in the middle of COVID. Um, it's been almost a year now since you've been there. I'm curious, like for any like interesting stories of of things that maybe your biggest lessons that you've learned over the past year, maybe things that you wish you had known going into it, would love just to hear about your experience since joining the company about a year ago. It's definitely an interesting time to take the reins of a company in hospitality during the middle of a global pandemic. The first thing that I, the first thing that I did was I did a, you know, very in-depth detailed listening sessions across the entire company. So I spoke to engineers, I spoke to products, I spoke to marketers, I spoke to customer service reps, like up and down the org. It was very clear to me, you know, this is back in August, the winter was coming, it was going to get cold, and it was going to get worse for restaurants. And so we, we click quickly made the decision like, okay, if we're going to continue waiving our fees up until Q1 of 21, 
to give restaurants that relief and the time to, to kind of recover. And that was the right thing to do. It was a big hit to us financially, but we ended up seating 135 million diners free of charge for our restaurant partners, right? And that's something that I'm really proud of, like even though um, looking at the PL made me really sad every day, <laughs> but I knew and the company knew that it was the right thing to do for our partners. And it has been a year and I've been taking stock, like what's gone well, what hasn't, a lot of the questions you've just asked. I think what I feel really good about is that at Open Table, I think we've had much better alignment and focus on like what we're going to do. People talk about alignment all the time and rowing or running in the same direction, but it's hard. It takes a lot of communication, over-communication. We're a very consensus-driven decision-making type of company. So it took a lot of time to make sure everyone was on the same page and we were all doing it in the same direction. And I think we've gotten to a really good place. What I didn't know or like what surprised me, I think taking a longer view, like I think by nature, I'm, I'm really impatient. I just, I wish everything could have happened yesterday. It's like one of my greatest assets, but it's also like, like a huge pain in the ass for people who have to deal with me, uh, both professionally and, and personally. And sometimes fast is not the right way. Fast is not right. Fast is not, you know, like it's not smart. And so, and I, and like, I think as a testament to the team at Open Table and, and like my leadership team there, constant reminder, like we don't want to just release it fast. We want to make sure we're doing it right and that we're building it thoughtfully, and that we're building it to last. So those are, those are lessons that I continue to get schooled in, you know, which is great. But yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's been a really interesting time. Things are like starting to kind of settle down though with Delta who knows, but it's been a great run and it's been really fun. It's like hospitality is a really fun industry to be in. And I just can't wait for the pandemic really to, to come to an end and for restaurants to really come back with a vengeance. Debbie, as we're coming up to the end of our time here, you've already shared so many amazing nuggets of, of wisdom. And we'd be really curious if there was one piece of contrarian advice you had to boil down all your wisdom into what would that be for you? We love it if you could share that with our audience. Especially for people early on in their career, there are no wrong turns. I really believe that. You know, like I obsessed about like, oh, like I'm going to Google, which product should I support? Or like, oh, what business school should I go to? Or like, oh, do I go to Google or do I go to Disney? Or like whatever it was. I ended up like in business school, I really wanted to go into retail. So I went and sold handbags at Saks Fifth Avenue for Louis Vuitton. It was like grueling, back-breaking work and really demoralizing because people don't think you're smart when you work in a store. And like, people would be like, that's crazy. Like you, why would you go do that? But it was so good for me, right? Like, so like even like really painful, mundane things that you think you're doing, especially early on, I think it's all accretive. I think it adds character. It adds experience. It, context. I just, I, I, I truly believe that especially early on in your career, everything you try is additive and good for you to go through and you can learn from it. I, I love that ending, Debbie. Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you so much for coming on and giving so many important pieces of wisdom. Thanks so much for tuning into Cross the Lines with your hosts, Angie and Jay. If you enjoyed today's conversation about the intersection of work and Asian American identity, 
please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to spread the word. We'd really appreciate it. And as always, you can head over to acrossthelinespodcast.com to learn more about the show, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time. Thank you.